We're back to the Neil Haley show here on the Total Celebrity segment. And, you know, uh, an amazing story. I mean, a story that I'm just blown away by. The first blind contestant and winner of a TV cooking show, Master Chef, won't let the rare disease that caused her blindness to stop her pursuing her dreams. So I'm excited to welcome the program, Chef Christine and also Dr. Williams. Guys, thanks for stopping by. How are you today? We're good. Thank you so much for having us. Absolutely. So Christine, can you tell us how you first learned of your diagnosis? Sure. It started when I was 20 years old. First, it was blurriness in one eye and then eventually blurriness in the other eye. Uh, initially, I was misdiagnosed with MS. And then several years later, I found a neurologist that understood me and a healthcare team that finally correctly diagnosed me with NMOSD, which is short for neuromyelitis optica spectrum disorder. All right. And so I'm going to ask Dr. Williams, what is neuromyelitis optica spectrum disorder? A good thing for early in the morning to, to, to ask that question. <laughs> absolutely. So that pronunciation was absolutely perfect. So NMOSD is a rare autoimmune condition where the immune system essentially attacks the nerves. The nerves of the eye are most commonly affected and symptoms can result um, in blindness or loss of vision. Also, the spinal cord is affected so people can have numbness and tingling or paralysis. Um, it affects about 10 to 15,000 people in the United States. And one of the reasons that we have decided to partner with Horizon Therapeutics for the NMOSD Won't Stop Me campaign pain is because sometimes the symptoms are irreversible. So we want to raise awareness so that people can be diagnosed and brought to medical attention early so that they can be treated and potentially prevent some disability. Now, Christine, how did you move forward and become so unstoppable in light of the challenges you faced? Well, initially it was difficult. Uh, it's human nature, I think, to go through this grieving process when you lose your vision or lose some independence. And well, when I was correctly diagnosed and put on a um, treatment plan that helped me, uh, I was able to kind of pick myself up and move forward. So I taught myself how to cook again in the kitchen with less vision. I learned how to read Braille. I learned orientation mobility with a white cane and then how to navigate the Houston public transportation system, which wasn't easy to go back to school. Uh, went back to school, did a complete career change, uh, got back in the kitchen and kept cooking so that I could continue to be uh, independent and then decided to audition for uh, MasterChef. And then since then, winning that uh, season in 2012 really launched my culinary career. So for me, it's really important to be an encouragement to other people to share their own story and show that it's possible to live with this disease and also ful uh, fulfill all of your dreams and live your life to the fullest. So I encourage people to visit nmosdwon'tstopme.com to learn about other people's stories, connect with other patients with NMOSD, and of course, share their own unstoppable story. Chris Christine, how did it feel winning it? I mean, it had to feel so amazing. <laughs> Because once I'm sure once, I mean, you, it was definitely, once you got diagnosed, you must yeah. have felt like, oh, my gosh, I'm never going to be able to cook again. I'm never going to do my passion. Yeah. again. And then you were able to overcome right. that. And then win MasterChef. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it was it was tough. I didn't know how I would live a quote unquote normal life again. I didn't know how independent I could be again or what my my next move or my purpose would be in life. I felt like I was taking a lot of steps backwards. Uh, but to be able to compete on the show and then end up winning that season, it was definitely a surreal moment. Uh, it felt like I had to work 
you know, two, three, four times as hard as other people to get to where I was. But I feel like I worked hard. I put my you know head down and just put my mind to it and then um, found a way to continue to do what I love to do. And then, and most importantly though, is to now I've been given this platform to be an advocate for people living with NMOSD or disability or vision loss and show them that uh, they too can live a very fulfilling and accomplished life. And I think that's the most important thing, live that accomplished life and you're such a role model. Uh, Dr. Williams, what advice do you have for patients with NMOSD community, for the, that community? Yeah, so the first piece of advice is you are your own best advocate, um, you know, and it's important to educate yourself to the best of your ability about your condition and to really engage in the healthcare process. You know, make sure that you're communicating with your healthcare providers if you're having issues and help to create the, all, the best treatment plan for you. I think the second piece of advice is to join the community, right? So raising awareness is so important and this campaign is so important because we want people to know that they are not alone in this fight and in this struggle. And also we want them to hear about inspiring stories from amazing people like Christine, who have not only faced the same challenges they have, but have been able to overcome them and to accomplish their dreams and goals. So, um, you know, those are my two pieces of advice that I would give. And I think, uh, Dr. Williams, how passionate are you about uh, this community and working with them to be part of this? Absolutely. So, you know, I am a specialist in neuroimmunology, which includes NMOSD as well as multiple sclerosis. And as we discussed earlier, sometimes there's some overlap and people can be misdiagnosed with MS when they actually have NMOSD. So I'm very passionate about educating and empowering people living with these conditions um, to be their own best advocates and part of their healthcare team. You know, and I think that's the greatest uh, thing is when you are doing something you love and are passionate about, it doesn't feel like work. It feels like something and it, it's something you, you know you're making a difference. And congratulations to you for all the work you do, Dr. Williams. Christine, where can we learn more about the campaign and gain access to your recipes? Sure, you can visit the website nmosdwontstopme.com and that's where you can find resources, learn about the advocacy organizations that are part of this campaign. And of course, if you share your own unstoppable NMOSD story, you can get the chance to win a signed copy of my cookbook. And it's got comfort food recipes and a lot of the things that I did cook on MasterChef. And how important is to put equity in your being uh, uh, with the food you you eat, especially with the recipes you have and all that stuff as a chef. You know, we see so many things that are not healthy that we're intake. How important is that to you as a chef? to be responsible. I mean, it's, I think it's important. And I think living life balanced is the most important thing. You know your body best. So, you know, if it's a day that you feel like eating a piece of cake will, meant, will mean more to you emotionally and mentally, then by all means do it. I mean, we shouldn't live on a diet where we're eating a slice of cake for every meal, but you know, whatever it does to make you feel better physically, but emotional and mentally as well as that's also important. So I think you know your body best, listen to yourself, listen to your gut on what it is that you want to eat. Well, I love hearing that because we can't just always be on this specific diet as I am always looking, I'm looking at that and what I'm eating more healthy, but you always have to have that cheat day or cheat meal or else you'll go crazy because there's so much good food out there. Where can people follow you social media wise? Are you on social media that people can connect with you as well? I am. I am. I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Uh, and my handle is the blind cook for all those.
All right. And yes. uh, any other new and projects? Also on a, go ahead, sorry, go ahead. Where you can find info and use it as well. Oh, you. I was going to say, I'm also on Instagram um, as the nerdy neurologist. Awesome. So, okay. So I'm impressed you're branding yourself as well with this. And that's important because you're building this community and to build a community leads to tribe building and leads them to this huge success. Because once you bring a community together and they have the right resources together, there's no stopping that community from the strides and improvement that they can make because stories make people passionate, excited and everything. So I appreciate you both coming by today and talking about this tremendous cause. And I hope everyone reaches out to you guys. So thanks again for coming on the show. Yeah, you're welcome. All right, you're listening Thank and watching you. The Neil Haley Show and we'll be back in just a moment. We're back to The Neil Haley Show. And you know, when you talk about being an entrepreneur, it's a process as all us entrepreneurs, we try to create, we try to motivate, we do all these different things. And my guest today is an author of two different things and she's gonna help us learn about it. She's an entrepreneur, nonprofit director, speaker and writer. She's written two books, uh, Cry Until You Laugh and Love Is. Kim Sorrell, thanks for stopping by, Kim, how are you? Neil, I'm great. I am so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. All right, so let's talk about your background and then we'll get into why you've written the two books. What's your background? Well. Uh, I was born and raised in Michigan, Grand Rapids, West Michigan area, and I started my first business right out of high school. I've been an entrepreneur my whole life, and I run a nonprofit organization, I'm a mom, a grandma, and a lover of people and lover of life. And I think that's so powerful that you are the, all those things and the nonprofit director. So you have to see specifically there's a something about why be involved in the nonprofit world and how it really is an important thing, right? It's to, to, to help really help people that need that specific help and all that and being nonprofit, right? Would you say that's one reason to focus on being a director of nonprofit to give back? Oh yeah, for, for sure. Absolutely. You know, I think one of the greatest things anybody can do for their psyche for their mental health, for their life in general, is to give back. And it doesn't really matter. You don't have to be the director of a nonprofit to do it, but just look around. There's lots of need. And the more you give, the more you receive and the better life is. All right. So let's talk about the two books, which um, your first book, then we'll get your second book. Tell us about the first. So the first book, Cry Until You Laugh, I uh, was diagnosed with breast cancer a few years ago. And I went to the bookstore and everything was either very medical or very depressing. And I thought, well, what am I going to go through? You know, are there questions that need to be asked? What's going to happen? And so I started writing kind of as a way to update family and friends, but much more than that, what I wrote about what I was going through. And uh, like one of the questions, for instance, Neil, that I had no idea you had to answer was, I had cancer on one side and do you get one side or do you get both oh, yeah. sides? <laughs> yeah. I didn't know. I don't know. So do you get both? Right? Yeah. 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 So, um, so I was sitting around the dinner table with my family one night and I said, Oh gosh, you know, I just don't know what I'm going to do about this. And my son, Paul said, well, mom, would you get new siding on just half the house? And I thought, well, good point, son. Might as well get both sides done. So that's what I did. 
But then four months later, my husband was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Oh, no. And, yeah. And then he passed away six weeks later. Oh, I'm so but, sorry to hear that. Oh, wow. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that a lot. He was a wonderful guy and uh, certainly unexpected. I was 47 years old and way too early to lose the man of your dreams and to lose the dream of growing old with someone. And so I had to figure life out. And so I continued to write for about a year. And so that is what Cry Until You Laugh is about. Uh, so it has to do with my whole cancer journey and becoming a widow, uh, becoming going from being taken care of to a caretaker. And it's just a crazy time in life. And then your other book is Love Is. So tell us about that. Yeah. So losing my husband made me question love. Like, what is love really? It's not like you go to the store and you buy a manual on love or love for dummies, right? So we learn love from the people around us and not everything we learn about love is right. So I wanted to know, gosh, am I doing this life thing right? And, and what's love got to do with it? And so I decided I would dedicate a full year to figuring out the real meaning of love. And so I took this old 2000 year old poem that you hear at a lot of weddings and everywhere else. It's uh, love is patient, love is kind, that does not envy, it does not boast, et cetera. Right. And take one word at a time, one word a month and figure out, well, what is love that is patient? What is love that is kind? And there are actually 14 of them. And so the one a month thing, the math didn't quite pan out for a year. So it took me a little bit longer. But I was mostly in Haiti uh, while I was working on it, which I think kind of added a different twist. I was chased by a motorcycle gang. I got lost on a mile high mountain with a medical student in the dark. I slept outside with tarantulas and snakes and chupacabras or whatever it is that's lurking in the bushes there. And what I discovered blew my mind and changed my life and rocked my world. And I think it would anybody's. Wow, I'm, I mean, absolutely. I mean, wow. And you got to learn so many things. So defining what love is, where do, where do we go in life, right? You know, when we, we're looking for love and defining love. And so you, what did you figure out? Because I think that love is, when you talk about that poem, it somehow disappears the more you get to know somebody longer, right? And some of these, the true feelings that each person come out that you can't find that is there a way to find that from your learning and writing this book absolutely for sure there is a way you know I, I really believe that love is not just a feeling not just an emotion like fear or excitement but it's who you are who you can be to other people and not just in a couple but everybody yeah, I really think you're supposed to love everybody. And uh, there is a way to find it. And there's a way to find your way back. So people that have kind of lost love, you know, you've lost the butterflies, you wonder where that feeling is gone. And, and you wonder if you're ever going to have it again. Absolutely. I think part of love is a choice that you make. And if you choose to have that excitement in your relationship, and you choose to have that, that Love, you know, do you remember that feeling when you first meet someone that you're totally connected to and you can't wait to see them, you can't wait to talk to them and 
you just have these butterflies. You just get so excited even thinking about them. Well, that love is something you can have all the time. It's, uh, it's not something that has to go away. But it is interesting to me that when somebody gets married, they always say, oh, gosh, you know, it's 50-50 it's or you both have to give 100% or whatever, like, like as if you are loving to get something. And I don't think that's love. I think love is on you. What the other person does is on them. But if you love and how you love, that's totally up to you. We don't control other people and what they do and, and what they don't do. We only have control of ourselves. And so we can choose to love and love deeply and fully and compassionately. And it's just such a better way to go when you realize that no relationship is 50-50. The minute that you give anything and expect something in return, that's no longer love. And that's hard, right? Because how do you in a way, see that as we see always the 50-50 thing. I guess it was a, a taught thing. So it's more about give, give, give and love and love will be returned to you, but maybe not in the same way, but you'll feel great because you gave that love. Is that what you're trying to say you've learned in writing the book? If it's talking about relationship or talking about relationships with other people just around us and, and from couples to your family, to your community, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, it's an interesting thing. When I was working on love is kind, because that's, that's the second one. Love is patient. Love is kind. So when I was working on love is kind, I went to this place that I love in Port-au-Prince. It's a home for sick children run by Mother Teresa's order, the Sisters of Charity. And I love to go there and I love to just find a baby and just latch on for the day and help with feeding and changing diapers and whatever. And so I went there and I saw this beautiful, beautiful, brand new baby laying in this pink sleeper. And I went over and, and found out that his name was Christopher. And I looked and there was a woman standing at the end of the crib and that was Christopher's grandma, Natalie. And so as the day went on, his story unfolded more, but Christopher was born, Natalie's only child was Christopher's mother and she passed away shortly after giving birth to Christopher on the dirt floor of their one room house. And Christopher had a hard time taking milk. He wasn't keeping his milk down. And Natalie thought it was because it wasn't her mother's, his mother's and wasn't sure what to do. So she walked for miles to bring her only living relative, her grandbaby to this place. And the best they could figure out was that there must be an abdominal obstruction, something that would be handled easily here in the U.S., but not there. And so Christopher needed oxygen, he had an IV. And at one point during the day, um, he stopped breathing. And we all stopped breathing. And then we realized there was a kink in the oxygen tank and in the tube. And so we unkinked it and he breathed again. So we knew that he needed surgery. We had a surgeon on alert at a hospital a ways away, but we knew he needed oxygen to get from where he was to where he was going. So I called everybody I knew in Port-au-Prince and I know a lot of people and there were people out looking for an oxygen tank. There were people that had no idea where to go for an oxygen tank, but nobody could find a portable oxygen tank in a city with 2 million people. So 
the decision he had to be made. And of course, surgery was his only option or he was going to die, but he might die because he couldn't have oxygen. So they pulled a van up to the closest door and they kept it running. And then one of the sisters scooped up Christopher while the other one grabbed his IV and took the oxygen away from him and ran for the door. And I looked and Natalie was still standing next to me. And I was like, Natalie, go, go, go. Well, she pointed down at her feet. She didn't have any shoes on. And she knew she would not be allowed in the hospital with, without shoes. So I quickly took off my sandals and I put them in one of her hands and I grabbed her by the arm and ran her to the door. And she got in just as the van was pulling away. So I knew I'd never see Natalie again. I wasn't gonna get my sandals back. I did a kind thing. I showed kindness and then realized that's what love that is kind is. It is giving with zero expectations of getting anything in return. Like, I don't know about you, but sometimes I have said or heard other people say, gosh, they didn't even say thank you. Or I went to their daughter's graduation party. Where are they at mine? But the minute you give something with expecting something back, it's no longer love. That's not love. But the biggest thing I learned that day is Natalie knew she wouldn't see me again either. But the gift that she gave me sharing her grandbaby with me that day was amazing. Her only grandchild and we bonded like crazy, like a mom and a grandma does. And, and it was incredible sharing that day and sharing that baby and loving Christopher that day with her. And that was such a greater gift than, than my sandals ever could be. Oh my goodness. I mean, that's a tremendous story. I think that you both books are very heart wrenching in certain ways. One, wow, how you're able to overcome these things. And then the second book, your search for love. Are there more books in the future? Yes. Yes, there are more books in the future. I think my next one is going to be Love is for Kids. I think the sooner, sooner everybody knows what love really is and then lives it, the sooner we have a, a much better world and, and are much happier people. All right. Best place we can find information on your books. Where can we go? My website, kimsrell.com. My last name has way too many letters in it, but I am literally the only Kim Sorrell spelled my way in the entire world, but it's S-O-R-R-E-L-L-E, two R's, two E's, two L's, kimsrell.com. Uh, you can go, go there. Um, I'm on Facebook. I'm everywhere. My, book is, are, my books are available anywhere, uh, even book and mortar stores like Barnes and Noble, but they're available on Amazon. Um, love is, is out there everywhere right now, but cry until you laugh is too. So. All right. Well, fantastic. Great information. Uh, I'm blown away. Thanks for coming on the show. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much, Neil. All right. You're listening, listening to the Neil Haley show. And we'll be back in just a moment. We're back to the Neil Haley show. And, you know, I'm just telling you, I am trying to reverse my age. I'm 49. Uh, you know, I've dropped X amount of pounds in the last year and now I'm working on really getting my body to not think like I'm 49. And this man here is my inspiration. He's my inspiration and in everything. So I'm excited to welcome the program, Dr. Ron Kaiser. He's the author of Rejuvenating. How are you, Dr. Ron? And 
it's wouldn't you agree? It's just something when you talk about uh, the this process, people just don't understand how we can feel younger, how we can feel healthier. And we just allow, I guess, father time to, to get the best of us and we make excuses, right? Sure. But th that's the key word is excuses. So I'm glad that, that you're having me on so we can talk about it because the reality is that we know a lot now about the aging process that can overcome those excuses. Overcome them beyond belief, overcome them. Uh, doc, Dr. Ron. And I think, first of all, it's what we put in our box. So I guess, you know, we don't want to give away the book. So you can give me some tips today. And I, I mean, I could pick your brain all day long because like as I have found out, you know, that we can live a lot longer if we choose, even though now the United States, as I just saw, I guess it was in a news article about a couple weeks ago, our life expectancy is even less now when in this country, we should be living a lot longer, shouldn't we? Absolutely. I mean, we now know that there are ways of increasing the lifespan to 100 or more, uh, you know, so, so the, the notion of being in a situation where we see old age as a period of decline, as opposed to really becoming the better version of ourselves is, you know, there's, there's no real excuse for it. And you're predicting in the next 20 years that people could live to 200 at one point, right? Or could, could live longer and longer depending on these changes and how these biohackers in uh, Silicon Valley are figuring this out. Well, there's no question that the average lifespan should be at least 100 years. Uh, right. There are uh, people in the geriatric field who feel that the first person to live to between 150 to 200 years is actually around and alive today. Um, whether we, we get to that point that soon, we're, we're uncertain, but there, it's absolutely uh, a situation where 100 should be considered an attainable goal, you know, and uh, that's why, you know, realistically, when the, the lifespan shortened, much of it was due to some of the ways in which we lead our lives and some of the ways in which we dealt with COVID and been in situations where uh, it, it was very easy to spread communicable diseases. You wanna be able to be as independent and healthy as long as you can. All right, so let's kind of just jump right into this, Dr. Ron. What tips right now for people that, especially I guess are getting into their 40s and 50s and they want to start to reverse the aging process, what things can they do first? Okay, great. That's a terrific question because I think it's very important for people like yourself to think about growing old early. In other words, I don't see growing old as being a negative term, but to do the stuff that implement and implement the stuff that really works. And we've got strong science to indicate that if you pay attention to what you put into your body, if you pay attention to uh, owning, what I call owning your body, which involves exercise, uh, meditation, sleep, the kinds of things that keep you, you healthy. If you pay attention to your intellectual functioning to keep the mind active, uh, not just on things related to work, but also to learn a variety of things. We, we know that that's associated with 
uh, delaying uh, and perhaps offsetting things like Alzheimer's. If we can learn to learn novel things throughout the lifespan. And also surprisingly, social connectedness is a very important thing. So if you're the kind of person who's putting yourself all into work and not staying socially connected, uh, that's, that's a real problem uh, because loneliness in the older age ranges is, is, is as much of a killer as say obesity, smoking and sedentary lifestyle. Now, wow. I believe it all starts with the mindset. I, I've defined, I've actually trademarked the term rejuvenating, and I define it as the art and science of growing older with enthusiasm. So it all starts with the positive, enthusiastic mindset, the belief that it's going to be a, a good time when you're older. And it will be a good time when you're older, especially when you're looking at, and this is something, uh, again, a, a colleague's talked to me about, is, again, we're going to be uh, not just this planet any longer. So if we want to live longer, we're going to get to see other planets. We're going to get to travel all over the galaxy. And that is going to be a different mindset than a lot of people, you know, 100 years before, that yeah. we're going to be able, we're going to be multi planetary species as, as Elon Musk said. So that should be a motivation in itself to want to live longer, to get to see the fruits of a lot of those different scientific shows and different things. And if we can now feel younger at 60, like we're 40 or 30 or, you know, and really not look at our age as a factor, we're going to enjoy things more because if we continue to be successful in what we do and we continue to not age as more quickly and our have health problems we're going to have lots of friends and we're going to have lots of experiences that are going to be really exciting in our lives for our kid our kids our grandkids and and our great grandkids if we go and live that kind of life that we and purpose that we need to live yeah just think about what you just described and the kind of lifestyle and compare that with somebody spending that time in a facility being taken care of, like a nursing home. Uh, you know, the reality is that, say for example, somebody retires at age 65 or 70, and they live another three or four decades. How would you like to be living more like the way you described it or being taken care of without anything to look forward to on a regular basis. I, I, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a huge thing. And that's where I've been taking um, really good care of my body, really trying to reverse the aging process. So eating the right foods, taking the right supplements, working out and saying, okay, now I want to look at my age and say, I want to be feeling like I'm 30, 20. And again, age is a mindset. My father lived to 94 and 95 and he showed me specifically that same mindset that age he did allow certain things because he didn't take care of his body but he showed it in his 60s and 70s and close to 80s as man he was fine but health caught up with him at one point in time so this conversation we're having such a short period of time which again we're going to have to have you on again because you definitely are an expert in this area because people don't want to speak about this Three tips right now for people, because people need to read your book. Bottom line, they need to read your book and say, am I going to re 
am I going to speed up the aging process or am I going to reverse that aging process? And if I speed it up, I'm going to be in a nursing home and I'm going to die at the age that America says you should die. Or am I going to speed up? I'm going to reverse that process. So when you're seeing some of these people that are seven years old that are in Hollywood or different successful moguls, or you like yourself at 80, that you don't act 80, and I'm sure your lifestyle's not an 80-year-old, that's important. So give us three things right now that people could do and really have a, you know, a checklist to say, man, I better do this so I don't end up in a nursing home. I don't end up alone. I end up living my life to the fullest. Okay, great. Uh, the First of all, I, I want to tell you, this stuff isn't magic. I mean, most people know about it, but one of the big problems is the fact that since you're not reporting to a job to take care of your body, uh, it's real easy to let that stuff slide. So, you know, when I say it's somebody's going to be sitting out there and saying, duh, uh, you know, I, uh, this isn't new, but it isn't, but it's important. So the first thing, I think one of the easiest things you can do is own your body because it doesn't depend on somebody else uh, approving of you, uh, paying you, doing uh, anything of that nature. So I think uh, the notion of starting to exercise on a regular basis, and exercise shouldn't be, you know, one of those scary things. You know, walking is a terrific exercise. I like to introduce the notion of, of three main elements, uh, the, the uh, aerobic cardio kind of thing that, that involves things like walking, uh, swimming, and so on. I think people should be stretching on a daily basis. And there's, oh. there's information online and in books and so on. And uh, while it may seem a little scary, I think we should be doing resistance exercises, whether it be with weights, resistant bands, or things of that nature. So I think, again, I would set aside a small amount of time uh, don't go from nothing to everything, but think in terms of owning your body. And that includes building in a regular sleep time. I like to add in uh, something like meditation or yoga on, on a regular basis too. Don't make it drudgery, make it manageable, and you'll be surprised how, how quickly uh, you adapt to it. The second thing that is really totally dependent on yourself is what you put into your body. It's not that hard. I know uh, my editor, when I wrote the book, I, I, uh, he, he made me tone it down a little bit because again, I think it's totally dependent on yourself. If you set particular goals for I'm going to uh, do something different, and, I, and this is what I encourage you, do something different uh, in the way that you eat, whether it's skipping dessert or rotating food, uh, fruit into it, or uh, as I do, most days a protein shake is, is my lunch. Uh, I don't eat between uh, dinner and breakfast, so it's sort of intermittent fasting. And I can only tell you that uh, early in COVID, when I was home a lot, uh, I put on about three pounds and that, that was enough to motivate me to, to make some of those changes. So now I'm 19 pounds less than I was at, at that time. So I think those couple of things are real important. The other thing is uh, keep the mind active. 
And I always encourage people to be, uh, you know, some of us got away from reading because just the pressure of work, raising family and so on. So again, take 15 minutes a day. You'll gradually build it up. Just like, you know, when you see the results from eating well, uh, it's motivating. If you uh, begin to gradually increase reading time, intellectual functioning time, uh, it's going to be motivating in and of itself. And I think that you will also, uh, if you do some of these things, then it will help you to maintain social connectedness because you'll have things to talk about, whether it be the books you're reading, uh, the, uh, the weight you're losing, you may get involved in other kinds of uh, physical activities at a gym, as I do. Um, you know, so I, I think those are, again, not magic, but the critical thing is to recognize nobody's paying you to do it, but the rewards are, are even greater than some of the financial rewards that somebody may be paying you to do. Oh, yes. Uh, such such great point. And keeping that mind going. And I think, you know, have, doing a writing a book or doing a podcast or radio show or TV show is a way to keep your mind going. Because you're interviewing a lot of interesting people like yourself. That's going to keep that mind going with all whatever business you're doing and whatever other stuff you're doing and reading up, keeping up with the news, reading articles and being very cultured, trying to, to, to not just focus in one area, but really train your, build your brain to understand and learn as many things as possible because that learned brain will keep things going, won't it? And they talk about that. Go ahead. No, while you're mentioning it, I, I want to point out that uh, there's very convincing evidence that doing things, learning novel things uh, is really protective against dementia and Alzheimer's and so on. And again, it doesn't require you know, magical kinds of things, learning to comb your hair with your other hand or button your shirt with uh, your other hand, uh, that exercises a different part of your brain. I mean, uh, certainly if you can do other things, learning a language or art, if you've never done it, that's uh, fine, absolutely fine. But look for little kinds of things that you can try and do differently. Improve the handedness of your non-dominant hand is a, is, a, is a good learning process. All right. See, that's what I love about what, what, what I'm getting from you. And again, definitely going to have to have them on. Again, uh, best place we can find information on you and buy the book, Rejuvenaging. Where can we go? Well, the book is on Amazon. It's a barnesandnoble.com. Uh, the simplest way is, is on Amazon, although people can contact me and we can take care of it too. I should point out that it's available in each format. So whatever you may like to, uh, you know, whether you, as I do, I like to physically hold the book, but uh, it also is in uh, an electronic format as an ebook. And it also is an audio book. If you're the kind of person who uh, if it'll help you to exercise and, and listen to it at the same time, you may find it very, very helpful. Well, I, I love the information. Uh, appreciate it. You're definitely a mission, one of those missions that I'm on. And it's like today, I, I you know, I ran on the treadmill for 30 minutes. I was able to do, uh, uh, you know, work out really well. But I said, no, no, 
I'm going to take this to the next level. And I'm going to say, okay, I can get in the best shape of my life at 49. And that's something that I'm going to set a goal for myself that I'm going to do and see, because I believe that if I'm going to be able to be around for my grandkids, my great caring kids, and be able to experience a multi-planetary society, I have to do the work. We got to put the work in Dr. Ron, or it's too late. We're not going to, it's not going to happen. Yeah. Well, there's so much that uh, you got to put the work in for it to, to be successful. And if, if you don't put the work in for yourself, then, then you're really being irresponsible to yourself. I'm glad you mentioned the, the issue of being around for your uh, grandchildren. I don't have great grandchildren yet, but I mean, uh, just to be able to, to do things with not just your kids, but your grandchildren, uh, that's, that's one of those really self-rewarding kinds of things. And I, I might add one other thing, and that's when you do that, or when you go outside or when you exercise, it's really good to be able to appreciate the good that permeates your life. It's actually one of my keys to rejuvenating. But the fact that my kids and grandkids make my wife and I a part of their lives is something that we don't take lightly. And I'm sure it helps keep us young. I do think it's very important to stay in touch with people throughout the age range because, you know, we're not, we're not special. Uh, there there uh, isn't a category of people who say, well, we're old, so nobody else should uh, be expected to interact with us. I, I, I gain from other people. I hope that others who are younger than me gain from me too. All right. Thanks again for coming on the show. You're listening and watching the Neil Haley show or listening to the Neil Haley show. And we'll be back in just a moment. We're back to the Neil Haley show. And I love interviewing authors. You know, I get the opportunity my whole life to get the opportunity to learn from so many new people all the time. And they, everyone has a great story. I'm excited to welcome program author, Megan Smith Brooks, author of Unraveling Grief. How uh, a mother's spiritual journey of healing and discovery. Megan, thanks for stopping by. How are you? Thank you, Neil. I'm delighted to be with you and to share with your audience. Absolutely. Let's kind of, you know, get into this process of what made you want to write this book? Uh, because, the, you know, we have these missions in life and we do these things, but then the work that it takes to write a book is not an easy task, especially if it's involving something that has pain involved in it. Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, it was part of my healing process. I didn't know it at the time, but there was a point, um, it's based on the story of my adult son, Justin, who was murdered in 2013. And in my healing journey um, and processing my grief, I realized that I've learned a lot and I had something to share that could be of value to others. And it, it became a place where I had to write it. I needed to do it for my own healing and it didn't matter who read it, but it had to be shared. And so it was kind of a birthing process for me. And in hindsight, I realized that it has made a difference and I've talked to a lot of people that have really wanted to write a book and it is a process and a commitment. And I had to just put myself in that space of letting it come forth. Oh, absolutely. You think about the, the amount of work to write a book and then people want to do it and you did, did this, but it took you time, right? From the grief process of losing your son in this horrific 
situation to finally writing the book and finally sharing the story. Oh, absolutely. Um, he was taken from us on May 30th, 2013, and it was finally February 2020 that I couldn't hold it back anymore. And and, and it's it feels ironic, but the process of writing the book, I did it through a writing retreat over a weekend, um, the foundation of my book, and then I took another 30 days to flesh it out and add what I wanted. And I was surprised that literally how quickly that book could come forth that to me was um, meaningful and that it was meant to be. When you talk about a writing retreat, what, what takes place at a writing retreat? Well, there's different forms. The one that I did um, had a spiritual context to it. I did it virtually over a three-day period. And so I created space in my home. I told my husband, um, pretend I'm not here. <laughs> I took over the lower level of our home. And the facilitator did it with um, going through some kind of clearing, getting, you know, your your head out of the situation, um, the left brain thinking of how this is going to work, and playing some soothing music, and in 15-minute increments over six hours, um, three days in a row, um, just downloading and writing without thinking, without stopping to organize it, and then you go back and organize the story in a way that emotionally it can connect with an audience. Wow. And I think that, that that had to be very heartbreaking for you to revisit that while writing the book in the retreat. Oh, you know, I have to say there were a lot of tears involved. Um, I had to go into a very deep and dark place emotionally um, to let that come through. And I hope that it came through in the words that, um, there's a courage that it takes to go into that place of, of heartache. But what I discovered is that if we don't do that, we can't truly heal and find a way to move forward. All right. And then and that's, that's the process. So once you went through the retreat, you wrote the book and tell us, you know, specifically enough what the whole book involves, because I think when you talk about unraveling grief, you are recovering and you're helping other people recover the same thing. If even if, during this time of COVID, think about when you wrote, wrote the book, that was the time of COVID, a lot of losses. You weren't mm -hmm. thinking about ultimately once you wrote the book that all this death and dying would be around us like this. Well, it was the beginning of it. And I did tap into it a bit in my book because I had this realization as I watched what was happening in the world around us, um, the, the lifestyle, the way that we had come to it expect the world to be was being dismantled. And I noticed how many people were uncomfortable. Of, if you didn't have a foundation of how to deal with change, especially unexpected change, it could really dismantle you and throw you into um, just a place of, of crisis. And, and I recognize that the pain of loss from a loved one is significant, but loss in any form of anything that has changed where we can't put it back in the same format affects us deeply. And so how do we process that? Um, how do we use it? And so my book is in two parts. The first part is my story. I really wanted to share my relationship with my son. I went back to the beginning because I recognized that, that through my life, I was building a foundation of how I was going to manage this deep and heart-wrenching grief. And that it, it supported me in um, finding a way through it. I was an ordained minister serving a spiritual community. So 
I had tools and practices I recognized others don't necessarily have. So the second part is, how could I share my understanding of what grief really is and that it serves a purpose in our human experience? That there is a, something we can discover about ourselves to enhance who we are because we've had this experience to move forward in a more profound way. And that itself is a hidden gift within grief. So that's where I led people through. Um, how can we use grief to find a way forward with meaning and purpose? Right. Using grief in a way to find a way forward with meaning and purpose is such an important thing. And I'm sure when you have gotten the opportunity to share the book with people and talk to other people that have gone through this grieving process, you knew as a minister already, but you had to learn some new life lessons from talking to other people, haven't you? Oh, absolutely. There's, it's different when you, you are supporting others in a crisis in life than walking through it yourself. So I recognized that I had to um, embrace this as my, my journey, use what I know, but I couldn't compare it to other people's grief stories. Um, and I recognized that we are uncomfortable talking about grief in our society that we try to avoid it, we try to pretend it didn't happen, that other people didn't want to talk about what was going on and what was very real for me. And so encouraging people to find a way to process that helps us to not let it sabotage us or blindside us, And but we have to be intentional about it. So I discovered that there were, there were some very basic things that could support us no matter what form of pain we're dealing with. And the first one was literally remembering to breathe because we don't always do that very well when something happens. It's like we go to that shallow place and we don't breathe in all that we need to sustain us. So a breathing practice just to help me process that intense pain was the beginning of moving forward. And what is your ultimate goal with the book? You know, it, it really was for me, it was personal. It was my healing process. I got to the place where I could not not write it. It needed to be brought forth. And if it could be useful to others to help them through the pain of loss in life, to walk them through that, to offer something of value, then I served my purpose. And I also realized that it's like I couldn't control who read it and how they interpreted it, I had to just let that part go. But I have to share a, a story. I have a, another son, my older son, um, who I sent, of course, a copy and he got it and he said, you know, mom, I thought I'd go to bed one night and just start reading a couple chapters. And I couldn't put it down. And at four o'clock in the morning, I finished reading it after I was sobbing and I had my highlighter and I'm um, I had no idea what your experience had been. And he said, I took a quote from your book and I put it on my desktop because I needed it. And what you said is, every day I get to choose how I will show up, who I want to be. And that has made a difference. And for me, that's why I wrote the book. It was for him. Oh, that's, that's wonderful. And I think that because he had to go through a grief process too, right? losing his well. Oh, absolutely. And I have a chapter in my book on sibling grief because I realized that his process of grief was very different than mine. 
his relationship with his brother was different than my relationship with his brother as my son. And he also felt some kind of guilt or need that he had to take care of me and comfort me and discount his own. So I had to support him in recognizing um, to not push his grief aside, but to process it and maybe we could do it together in our own ways. Do you have some interesting stories to share that uh, people have written, your, read your book or that have gone, have really been able to deal with this grief better? Or like just without giving names of people that have been able to share in this process of you writing this book? Oh, absolutely. You know, people experience grief in different forms. You know, mine was from the murder of my son, though that's not the only grief experience I have had. Prior to my son's death, I'd lost my father and all my grandmothers and grandfathers. Um, my mother passed just this last October. I had a sister that took her life by suicide um, a year and a half ago. So grief continues to hit us. And so I've had people come to me um, that have lost a child by suicide, um, a, a spouse, a parent, but that it made a difference to them. It gave them comfort, but also gave them hope that there was a way through it and that they didn't have to live in this loss of feeling like their life had been destroyed. I recognize that some people hold onto their grief as a way of um, become victimized and that we don't honor our loved one if we stop living we're still here breathing. And so what I, I've seen as sort of a, a trickle of consistency is that people said that hope helped me recognize that how I live now is how I honor my loved one. And that makes a difference. Oh, that's, I mean, that's such a wow. Uh, so, so powerful. Um, when you think about these stories and how people deal with grief, moving forward. Do you have a couple of tips for our listeners on how to handle grief, especially losing somebody really unexpectedly? Because sometimes we do expect them to pass. And we're well, ready. and that's true. Um, you know, it, grief is grief. And I think it's really important that we don't try to compare our stories with others. Um, so oftentimes people will think that they're helping you by telling how they handled the grief. And I, I came to the place of just saying, thank you for sharing. Um, I appreciate that and then honor myself. It's like you listen to yourself. What do I need? There is a very deep part of the grief journey that's about self-care. It's about nourishing myself. And it takes a lot of energy to process grief. So I notice that you're more fatigued. So what we eat, which is, you know, vibrational energy, really, it's like, right. is my food alive or is it junk food? Exactly. Because my body is going to need more to sustain me in this process. So I, I encourage people to, to do self-care, to honor yourself, to share what you feel like you can and can't do in a way that honors you, to take the time to let the tears flow. That's such a healing, cleansing way of not holding back. Just let it just come out. I, I coach people through this process I call regurgitating the pain. You know, if you need to scream, throw rocks, um, you know, do things that aren't destructive to others or the world around you, but just get it out. Because otherwise it's going to interfere with how you can live from a healthy place. Invite others to be there for you if you feel you want the comfort. 
not the fixers, but the people that are good listeners, that'll just be there to love you. Allow that to be a part of the process and know that one day at a time, you will come out of the, the really raw, vulnerable stage and begin to discover that there's a space within you that will always contain your sorrow and your grief, but you come to appreciate it because it reminds you of your capacity to love. And that in itself is a gift. So as we can begin to notice the depth of my grief equals the depth of my love, and I wouldn't want to trade that for anything. So powerful what you're talking about. And uh, it's just something that we just done it. It's unexpected. It takes time to get over. And some people grieve for a long time. Some people get over it very quickly, but it happens to everyone. It's something that no one has not been par- a part of or soon will be a part of. And they have to really understand that. And that's why you're out there doing this mission for sure. It's part of our human experience. It's not something we can avoid. So if we think we can, we're in denial. And so if we recognize that it's a part of our experience, then what we're called to do is to embrace everything. And even the painful things, they offer something of value to who we are and to expand how we show up in the world. And so it has a valuable um, aspect of life. And I don't think that we're taught that. And so if we can begin to recognize it in that way and know that it will be triggered again, you don't just get over it. You know, I have moments where I might just be walking down the street and see a young man that looks like my son and my heart just breaks open, just like it happened all over again. All right. So we have to honor ourselves in those moments and go, okay, that's just a reminder of how much I love. And that's, that's okay. All right. The best place people can purchase your book and learn more about you, where they, where can they go? Uh, it is available on amazon.com on Kindle version and paperback. I am working on an audio, so hopefully that will be released um, sometime. I have no control over that editing process. You can also email me at unravelinggrief at gmail.com if you're interested in knowing about my online coaching program. I'm here to support.